You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Good morning. There was uh, once a young man who grew up in a God-fearing home. His parents taught him to love God and neighbor, and he did. He attended a renowned school of religion, studied under a top scholar. He excelled beyond many of his peers. He became a really good theologian. He finished top in his class, entered a life of full-time vocational ministry. He was a pastor. People had high regard for him. His parents were so proud of their boy. Early in his pastorate, he ran into uh, some people that were giving him trouble, which, ask any pastor, that's not unusual. Right? What is unusual is the way he dealt with them. He beat them. He imprisoned them. Yeah, the look on your face is right, Judy. Yeah, what? Yes. In some cases, he was an accomplice to their murders. And what's amazing about this pastor is that he was absolutely convinced he was serving God by doing these things. This isn't exactly the outcome our modern seminaries are shooting for when they put together their promotional literature, is it? Many of you know who I'm talking about by now. It's a Pharisee named Saul that goes later on uh, by the Apostle Paul. Saul was very religious, but not a follower of Jesus. He knew about Jesus. Maybe he'd even seen him uh, in Jerusalem or heard him preach, but he didn't know the truth about Jesus. When he considered Jesus, he saw someone who was untrained and weak and pathetic, someone to be mocked, a, a blasphemer. He didn't think any better of Jesus' followers, those Christians. He did everything he could to stamp them out. That was Saul. Fast forward 20 years, and this same man writes to a group of Christians at the the town of Corinth, and given his background and his reputation, what he writes to them is really astounding. It's incredible. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 17. Paul writes this to the Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And we might ask, could this be the same man who persecuted the Christians before, 20 years previously? If so, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. He met the Lord Jesus Christ, right? There was a transformation. The gospel came to him, but it didn't stop with that. The gospel came for a purpose. There was intent. It came to change him. Jesus changed him. You might remember our series, uh, it's four parts, what the gospel does. We started last week and we had some hand signals. You remember that? So let's see if you remember. And if not, it's super easy to follow along. So the gospel comes to us, it changes us, it brings us in, and it sends us out. And so last week, we talked about how the gospel comes to us. It comes as news, it comes as a gift, it comes to us, right? We didn't go looking for it. And now this week, 
The gospel comes to us to change us. The gospel changes us. It certainly changed this Pharisee named Saul. Jesus changed Saul. We read about Saul's conversion in a few places in the New Testament. One of them is in Acts 9. So hold your finger in 2 Corinthians and go three doors to the left. Acts chapter 9. And while you're finding that, I'll just give you a little background. After Jesus died and rose and ascended to heaven, his followers stay in Jerusalem. The day of Pentecost comes, so they're all baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they're sent out to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And just like Jesus, they were met with opposition. To be like him is to experience what he experienced. To follow him is to expect that same kind of life. So his people were dragged before religious leaders. They were persecuted. They were seen just like Christ as blasphemers and lawbreakers worthy of punishment, even death. That's the culture their faith was lived out uh, in the, the first century. Very hostile to the truth. One follower of Jesus, a man named Stephen, he had recently become a deacon in the church and he had the power of God at work in him in some miraculous ways. He had a great testimony. So he gets an audience with the high priest and other high-ranking religious leaders. Acts 7 records his sermon. It's amazing. It's like an overview from Abraham all the way through to Jesus in one chapter. And like any good sermon, he ends with some application. Verse 51, he closes with, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Man, you know how people tell you don't use always or never, right, Paul? You always resist the Holy Spirit. Like your fathers, you too are murderers of God's prophets, but you're even worse because you killed God's son. Now greet those around you while the ushers come to receive the morning offering. Right? Stephen calls them out and they stone him to death. Welcome to first century Christianity. Stephen stands for the truth and he gets killed for it. And Saul, we read, is there approving his murder. Just another day in ministry. Nothing's changed. Not, not when we catch up to Saul in Acts chapter 9. He's on the road to Damascus. He's, he's living his best church-hating life now when ministry gets interrupted. Listen to, the, to the Saul. Saul's just going about his murderous ways, persecuting the church. And here's what we read. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, went to the high priest, asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, that's the church, the way of Jesus, men or women, he might chain them up and bring them to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. The men traveling with him, they stood speechless. They heard voices, didn't see anyone. Saul got up. His eyes were open, but he didn't see anything. They led him by the hand, took him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and he didn't eat or drink. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, go, rise and go to the street called Straight in the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. 
And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake, for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, laid his hands on him, said, brother Saul, I mean, just think about Ananias to ever think he would say those words to the persecutor of the church, right? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So we have this amazing and dramatic before and after picture of Saul, right? You've seen the, 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 the weight loss or the putting on muscle or whatever it is. You have the before picture and the after picture. And we see an incredible change in this man. And the pivotal point for this change was his encounter with Jesus Christ. And instead of just going back and forth between Saul and Paul, I'm just going to call him Paul from now on, talking about the same person. When Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was changed. That's what changed him, encountering Jesus. He did not wake up one morning and say to himself, you know, that whole situation with Stephen has really been troubling me. Or I, I, maybe I've got these Christians wrong. I mean, maybe I'm making up stuff about them. They're not that bad. They always have food when they gather. I'm hungry a lot. Maybe I'll give Christianity a try. That was not Saul, was it? That wasn't Paul. Paul wasn't looking to become a Christian, just the opposite. He was committed to wiping them out. He was on the road to persecute Christians when Jesus came to him in love and mercy and called him to himself. And not only that, called him into the ministry. Jesus made this persecutor of the church a minister of the gospel. Jesus came to, to Paul. Jesus changed him. Now Paul knows the truth about Jesus, that Jesus came and died and rose for him, for Paul, for sinners everywhere. Paul experienced something radical here. He experienced what it means to be made new, right? Jesus doesn't just want to freshen up Paul's life or your life, smooth out the rough edges. He comes to renovate us completely. He doesn't just want to reform us on the outside, simply change your behavior. You know, making Paul stop killing Christians, that's a good thing. We want Paul to quit killing Christians, but God's work goes deeper than that. We see this in the last verse of uh, 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is no minor change. That's a major overhaul. The righteousness of God, Jesus gets our sin and we get his righteousness. That's a really good deal for us. This is grace. It's this grace that changed Paul, the same grace that changed you and changed me. 
Or, or if not yet, if this isn't yet your story, if, if the, this isn't yet your song, if you're not a Christian, I can confidently say that this is why you're here this morning. To, to hear the gospel and believe. To, to be found by Jesus. To be saved and forgiven. To be washed clean from all your sins. And I would say to you, you can trust him. Quit resisting this morning and give in to the one who, who has done everything for you. The one who, who has given his life to make you whole. The one who has the power to change you in all the ways you need changing. And if you're honest, you would say, there's a lot of things that need changing about me. The gospel changes us. What kind of change are we talking about here? Sometimes we focus on the externals, don't we? We just want to clean us up a little bit. Uh, quit drinking, quit smoking, quit cussing. About anger, set that aside. Sex immorality, things like that. Does God want us to be responsible with our bodies and use them in a way that honors him? Yes, he does. Doesn't God tell us to be careful with our freedom? Like when it comes to drinking, to consider the weaker brother, to, to not become drunk, to not let anything master us. That's faithful to the scripture, right? Yes, it is. When it comes to our words, shouldn't we be careful with them? That our words would build people up and not tear them down or gossip or the filth that sometimes makes its way over our gums and out into the world. Isn't that important that our, what comes out of our mouth is of a certain kind of character? Yes, absolutely. But if these things are the, the essence of Christianity, if this is what the gospel does, makes the changes in those areas, then we've got some serious problems why? Because you don't need Jesus to be moral. You don't need Jesus to drink responsibly. You don't. You don't need Jesus to watch your mouth or to be less angry or to be kind to the poor or generous. Now, if you're really caught up in some of those things, if those things characterize your life and he changes you and those things are different for you, that's going to be a wonderful testimony to people around you. They, what, what happened to you? And you can tell them, about Jesus. But the change that Jesus brings is much, much deeper than that. One pastor said, the gospel doesn't make us nice, it makes us new. All right? Now, an unkind Christian is a horrible testimony, so don't be a jerk. All right? You know, I was, uh, the last service, I was just struck by the things that you can say to a group of people that you can't get away with one-on-one. -on -one. Right? Don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. I love the pulpit. The gospel doesn't make us nice, it makes us new. New how? New in what ways? The three things, these are in the bulletin from our verses uh, 14 to 17, that for Paul and for all Christians are now new because of what the gospel does, because of what Jesus has done. First, we have a new Lord. Verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Listen to this. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What, what does it mean to be a Christian? We, we might have a lot of answers to that. 
It means right here, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose from the dead. We have a different Lord. We have a new Lord. That's where it starts. Paul says that the love of Christ controls him and his life is not his anymore. So prior to meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul was at the center of Paul's life. His own self-centered self, uh, zeal, even if it was for God, that's what controlled him. That was his motivation. The same can be said for you and me. Prior to meeting Jesus, we were at the center of our lives. We called the shots, what we did with our money, how we spent our time. We controlled that, but no longer. In Philippians 3, Paul rattles off what used to give him so much self-confidence. Maybe you have your own list. Here's Paul's. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I just see Paul getting like really puffed up and really straight back. If he had a jacket, like a good Presbyterian, I don't know. He would like pull on the sides there. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal. This is really interesting. When he thought about himself in his previous life before encountering Jesus, when he thought, how do I know I'm really zealous for the truth, really living for God. I'm a persecutor of the church. That's how he would answer that. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That was Paul. That was Paul, but no longer. Now, rather than Paul's own zeal for God, it's God's love for Paul, especially the love of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. That's the controlling power in his life. If you've been controlled by fear or pride or your own righteousness or whatever else, and you've come to a place of surrender where you can say with Paul, the love of Christ now controls me. You know how sweet it is to no longer be trying to control things yourself, to no longer be in the driver's seat of your life, you holding the reins. That might feel really good for a while and then everything hits the fan and you're like, oh man, I'm in way over my head. We're not in control. The love of Christ controls us. We have a new Lord and he, Jesus, is far better. We have a new Lord, friends. There's a lot of uh, uh, trigger words, I think, in the Bible, just in, in the English language that we read and we think, oh no, that what control is one of those. We read this word. We, sometimes we often cringe when we hear the word control. Some people cringe when they hear the word father. Father's Day is really hard for them because of their own experience. So even if we're talking about Father God, it's, it's the, the, our background. Control. Maybe you've been abused by someone in authority over you. And to have someone in control of you has been a bad thing, a harmful thing. It also sounds like such an attack on our freedom, and we love our freedom, right? To, for someone else, anything else to have control over us. But the control that Paul is talking about here is none of those things. It's not oppressive. It's not harsh. It's not abusive. It's being controlled by the love of someone, their love for you and your love for them. Uh, C.S. Lewis was once asked, is it easy to love God? Right? And think about that. If someone were to be talking with you this afternoon, they said to you, is it easy to love God? 
I mean, what would you say? I don't know what I would say. Here's what he said. It is easy to those who do it. It sounds like him, right? At, at this point, uh, I think what he was saying, his point, is that when you fall deeply in love, you want to do what pleases the one you love. You don't wait for them to ask you something. You uh, find out what would bring them pleasure and you just do it. Even if it's a sacrifice or an inconvenience or costs you something, it's your joy, right? Your attitude is your wish is my command and it doesn't feel oppressive or burdensome. And from the outside, it might look like you're whipped, right? But from the inside, it feels like heaven, the love of Christ controls us, our love for him, but especially his love for us. And now we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose from the dead. So in addition to having a new Lord, there's a second thing that's new, another change the gospel has affected in our lives. We have a new perspective. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So there's another distinction made. First, it was old Lord, you, whatever, new Lord Jesus. Now old perspective, the way you used to see, now new perspective. The beginning of verse 16, he uses that phrase, from now on. So after he's been changed, after this encounter from Jesus, from now on, we no longer see things the way we used to. From now on, we regard all people, and that includes Jesus, with, with fresh eyes, with new eyes. No longer do we regard a, people according to the flesh. That's a worldly point of view, kind of just down here. But now Paul's saying we see them in a different light. We see them the way God sees them. Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases this verse this way. He says, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside. So Paul used to see Jesus as weak and pathetic, a false Messiah who got what he deserved by being put on the cross, but not anymore. Paul's been given new lenses, right? Better spectacles. And now when he looks at Jesus, he sees him for who he really is, a glorious Lord, a beautiful Savior, the world's true King, the Messiah, the one who died and rose from the dead for him, the one for whom he now lives, the only one worthy of his life. That's how he sees Jesus. Paul's seeing has changed. How he regards God, how he sees himself, all others, the meaning of life. It's all been reworked and reformed because of his encounter with Jesus. If you've been changed by the gospel, you can say the same thing. Maybe you came to faith later in life and can remember the way you used to think about things and people and, and all that stuff before. But now because of this new perspective, you see things differently, don't you? You once were blind, we just sang a moment ago, but now you see. Sometimes the challenge is to keep wearing, keep putting on the new frames instead of reaching for the old ones. Because of the gospel, we have a new Lord. Because of the gospel, we have a new perspective. And finally, because of the gospel, we are a new creation. Verse 17. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And notice that Paul isn't just saying that things have become new for us, though they certainly have, but we are new. We are new. If anyone's in Christ, he or she is a new creation. If anyone's united to Christ by faith, they're not just nice or improved, you're new. You once were an Adam, sin and death reigned over you, but now you're in Christ. Now you're new. When you were old, your sin was in step with your nature. When you're not a Christian, before Jesus and you had that encounter, you were just living out of who you are consistently. We sometimes get mad at Christians for not being more Christ-like, for, or non-Christians for not being more Christ-like. Right? They're just living out of their nature, who they are. But now... When we sin, now when Christians sin, we're acting contrary to our nature. It's not who we are. It's not our new identity. Now there's this thing called conviction. Have you heard of it? Now there's this person called the Holy Spirit and he's all up in your business. He won't let us get away with living for ourselves any longer. Before we lived our old life, we lived, uh, we performed old actions, we had our old ways of thinking, it was all in line with our old nature, but now we have a new nature and our heart of stone has been replaced by a heart of flesh. And when we try to roll out what's old, there's this tension. Have you felt that? Maybe we didn't feel much of that before we were Christians. There's this tension now in the choices that we make and the life that we live. You were a round peg popped out of a round mold when you were born. But after meeting Jesus, now you're a square. And no matter how much you try to make it fit, a square peg does not fit in the round mold anymore, does it? It doesn't. So quit trying to jam it in there. You're new. You're a new creation. This was incredibly personal for Paul, which is why I wanted to read his conversion story. Even self-righteous persecutors of the church like me, Paul could say, are now part of God's new creation. If the the song Grace Unmeasured uh, existed in the first century, I think it would have been one of Paul's favorites. I don't know if you know the song or not. But it goes, grace unmeasured, vast and free, that knew me from eternity, that called me out before my birth to bring you glory on this earth. Grace amazing, pure and deep, that saw me in my misery, that took my curse and owned my blame, so I could bear your righteous name. And the chorus, grace, 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 paid for my sins and brought me to life. Grace, 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 clothes me with power to do what is right. Grace, grace, grace will lead me to heaven where I'll see your face and never cease to thank you for your grace. In verse two, which I'm gonna read because I added 20% to my preaching as a Father's Day gift to me today. (laughs) Especially in this last service, there's not much of a rush to get out. Verse two, think about Paul. Think about yourself as you hear these words. It's, it's, It's very personal. 
grace abounding, strong and true, that makes me long to be like you, that turns me from my selfish pride. This is not a one-time act at conversion. This is every day, friends. That turns me from my selfish pride to love the cross on which you died. Grace unending all my days. You'll give me strength to run this race. And when my years on earth are through, the praise will all belong to you. So wonderful. It's God's grace that comes through Jesus that makes us new a new creation. The gospel comes to us to change us, to make us new. And we could spend a lot of time talking about new creation from the prophet Isaiah or the end of the book of Revelation. But I just want to say something I mentioned last week. God's plan from the beginning was to have his people in his place under his rule, right? That was creation. That's life as it's meant to be. But as you know, as you probably know, our sin disrupted the creation. But then in Jesus, the, the plan is being restored, right? God is going to have his people in his place under his rule. One day, the whole creation itself will be new. There'll be a new heavens, a new earth. We long for that day. But even before that day comes, God's people, we are to be the preview now of that coming day, a demonstration community of the life that is coming. We are new creation now. That's our identity now. We're new now. In Jesus, the future, we could say, has come into the present. And so individually, each one of us, new creation, if you're in Christ. Corporately, we're part of what the Bible calls a new humanity. That's us together, the church Cosmically, we're part of God's big picture, his plan to bring all things together in Christ, to unite heaven and earth. New creation, living together as part of new humanity, pointing to and anticipating the new heavens and the new earth that will one day come. And we, it's, you know, new, new, new. I've been, I don't know how many times I've said that in the last two minutes, but there's a lot of newness. And isn't that great? But wait, Pastor Tim, I don't feel new. Anyone? I'm new creation. Are you kidding me? Uh, if you could hear the way I talked to my kids this morning on Father's Day, or how selfish I still am, or, or if you just knew how much I still struggle with sin. I, I don't know if anyone who knows me, maybe this is what you're feeling too, who knows me that well, would use the word new to describe me. If you feel that way, you're not the first one to feel that tension. Remember I said, if you're a Christian, there's this new category of life that does not always feel great for you. It's tension, conviction, God's continuous work in your life. If you feel that way, this tension, Paul knows how you feel. The one who wrote 2 Corinthians 5 Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It sounds so final, doesn't it? Wow, that's great. In Romans 7, same person writes, I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? New creation, ongoing struggle with sin. What, what kind of connects them? Tension. 
there's tension. So here's the question I have is, what are we to do with that? How do we do what's new? How do we live out our newness? Anyone? Come on up here and tell us. How do we live out our newness? I have two thoughts. Fixed on a particular person and with a particular people. All right, you've probably guessed who the person is. Who is it? If, if, if I said someone else, you should run for the door. <laughs> Jesus, the one who died and rose from the dead. Jesus, the lover of our soul, let us to his bosom fly. Let us get there quick. We live out our newness, fixed on, close to, abiding in, united to Jesus. And this must be with a particular people. And that people is our, the church, the new humanity, the family of God. After all, Paul is writing what he does to the church at Corinth. The new creation life we have been given, we've been caught up in, has a support structure. We're not supposed to live this new life alone. We learn how to live this this new Jesus-oriented, spirit-directed life as we spend time with each other, as we open up our lives and our homes to each other. It does take a village. It takes a Christian village to no longer live for ourselves, but for Jesus instead. And you and I cannot do this alone. So three things come to mind. Don't forsake coming to church, gathering together for worship. Make this a priority. I'm really grateful to God that we live in a time with technology where if people are, are homebound, they can, they can participate that way. During COVID, it really saved our bacon, pun intended, Father's Day. Okay. No one paid me to work that in there. But it does not replace gathering together in person. It doesn't. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's the best that people can do. And that's wonderful. But if you can be here in person to, to see each other, to hug each other, to put your hand on someone, to talk with others, to listen, if you can gather here together like this, do not forsake this. Let us continue to persevere in this. That's one help. Another help, get yourself in a small group, whether a life group or a Bible study, a group of Christian friends. Just be with a smaller group outside of this, this worship service with Christian friends. They don't have to be your only friends. And I hope that you have other friends that are, are not Christian friends. But we all need fellow Christians who know us, who can pray for us, care for us. Friends who want to see Jesus formed in us. We need that. Then finally, join a summer dinner party when we tell you about them next week. So that's coming. It's another opportunity to get together with God's people. So we live out our newness fixed on Jesus and with the church. And there's no alternative to that. There's no plan B. There's no workaround. It's this particular person and these particular people. Jesus and the church isn't the, the beta of something better to come. This is it. And so if you've been searching, I, I would say your search is over. This is what we got. Jesus is Lord and you're stuck with us. 
So get over it in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have questions about uh, this new life or what it means for Jesus to change us, if you'd like to pray or talk after the service, we'll have some people down here and to the right that would love to pray with you. I would just encourage you, connect with somebody today if you have questions about what you've heard or you, you sense God's doing something in you. Don't leave without getting that out there in, in conversation. Well, Jesus is good, isn't he? He is. Come back next week and we'll consider uh, how the same gospel that comes to us and, and changes us then brings us in together as a family. In a closing, I thought about this question that Jesus asks a few times in the gospel. He says to various people, what do you want me to do for you? And so I thought, let's, let's take 30 seconds and respond to him in the, the quietness of our own hearts. Imagine Jesus saying to you, what do you want me to do for you? And then tell him.